modern software consists of sprawling international networks of servers. Users contact these servers to access applications. Microservices on these servers talk to each other to fulfill complicated requests. Databases and machine learning frameworks on these servers crunch terabytes of information to provide complicated answers. Across all of this infrastructure, there is a lot of different activities and a lot of vulnerabilities. Without a reliable model for security and trust, software can be easily compromised. In the past, systems were often protected by a firewall, which is a security system around the perimeter of a network. A problem with this model is that if the attacker is able to penetrate the firewall, they can compromise anywhere in the network. Firewalls can be penetrated, so a much better security model is to assume that your network has already been compromised, and to require every internal system to identify and authenticate with each other. Zero-trust security is a security model that requires internal systems to communicate with each other as if they were potentially compromised. Evan Gilman is the author of Zero-Trust Networks, Building Secure Systems in Untrusted Networks. He also works on Spiffy, a system for managing identity and trust within a zero-trust network. In a previous episode about Google Beyond Corp, we had Max Saltonstall from Google come on to talk about zero-trust networking in the context of user and device authentication. In today's episode, Evan discusses another side of zero-trust networking, workload identity and authentication. Just as the Google Beyond Corp project outlines an architecture for allowing devices to communicate with the network, the Spiffy project outlines a system for workloads to identify and authenticate themselves. Workloads can range from MapReduce jobs to microservices to front-end application servers. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode with Evan Gilman. Evan Gilman, you are the author of Zero Trust Networks, a book about building secure systems in untrusted networks. You are also working on Spiffy, which is a zero-trust workload identification system, and you're an engineer at Cytale.io. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much, Jeff. So we're talking about zero-trust networks today, and we did a show in the not-too-distant past about Google's approach to zero-trust. As far as I know, Google pioneered or at least popularized the idea of zero-trust networks, so in, in order for us to, to dive into this topic, can you explain the idea of a zero-trust network? Sure. You know, I, I think like uh, what Google has done is kind of one example of, of a zero-trust network. I, I tend to think of, that, of it as kind of a model, a security model, rather than, you know, a particular technology or a particular implementation. And so generally speaking, a zero-trust network is kind of what it sounds like. It's, it's a network that is not trusted to do its duties. So that's not just to say that the packets won't come across, but it is to say that packets might be modified at any given time and, and that you have to assume that or forged completely. And you kind of have to assume that the network has already been compromised. And so if you if you kind of like this is like a pretty big difference from the way that people have historically looked at networks where where we have trusted networks, you know, and it's pretty common to have a firewall that has like one port that says untrust and one port that says trust where untrust faces the Internet and trust faces, you know, your, your precious resources. So the zero trust model kind of turns that on its head and says, you know what, like we actually don't su feel super comfortable saying that any side of this network is trusted. And instead, we should build our systems in a way that assumes that there's somebody already on the network. And, you know, what that usually boils down to is very, very rigorous and ubiquitous security controls. So at a high level, a zero trust network is a philosophy. It's an idea that we're assuming we've already been penetrated. There is an intruder or there are agents within the network that we don't trust. Perhaps it's malware. Perhaps it's something as subtle as a spam email that's going around that's got a phishing link in it. So how does this translate into changes to our software architectures from the engineering point of view? Yeah, I mean, it, it can result in some pretty drastic changes. I mean, generally speaking, when you have a trusted network, uh, 
things like uh, application authentication, encryption, et cetera, um, generally fall by the wayside. Number one, because historically they've been pretty hard to do. And number two, why would I bother with this when I'm behind this firewall? So a lot of this involves like pulling the reins in and, and moving those security controls closer to the things that you're actually trying to protect. So sometimes within the applications themselves. So this what it generally ends up meaning is very, very rigorous authentication and encryption approaches. And, and you do this kind of you essentially build workloads inside your data center as if they were all internet facing. So, you know, we historically, the internet is considered untrusted and we kind of know how to secure applications that are internet facing. We know how to do good authentication and encryption in, in, in those places and, and good audit logging and so on and so forth. And so um, in, ter- in terms of taking that approach internally, it's essentially the same thing. We kind of know how to do this already. The challenge now is kind of doing that at scale and applying those rigorous security controls very, very broadly. We've got legacy architectures throughout the world of of software engineering. We've also got some people who have migrated to newer architectures. Maybe they're on the cloud. Maybe they're on something like Kubernetes or Cloud Foundry. There is a wide variety of deployment mediums for people to be running their software. Is there a way to standardize zero-trust networking in terms of a software package, or is it more the case that each of these different architectures are going to have to figure out point solutions for implementing and rolling out zero-trust networking in their architecture? That's a great question. You know, I think that it's kind of a, a little bit of both. You know, I, I do think that there's room for standardization and there's room for interoperability. You know, that's kind of what we're going to talk a little bit about today, I believe. And some of the projects I'm currently working on are, are aiming to try and kind of level that playing field in the super heterogeneous environments. At the same time, you know, different different require like usually what I say is, you know, focus on a particular area that you want to do zero trust with with, with a particular set of requirements. And the hard part is, is that particularly when considering old school legacy stuff that might be on premise in a data center and on cloud stuff, the requirements of those software stacks can vary sometimes wildly. And so the way that you go about solving this problem in those different stacks might be different just because the requirements are different. This pops up a, a ton when architecting uh, towards a zero trust model for like user facing systems. Um, similar to how Google has done it versus like inside the data center for machine to machine traffic. And those solutions are usually look quite different from each other simply because the requirements are different. And I think that similar thing applies to, you know, legacy versus cloud. Like I said, I, I do think there is some room to kind of level that playing field. It, it has to be done, you know, kind of from the ground up. And, and that's kind of where I've been putting my focus over the last year or so. So we can establish design patterns in each of these domains. So whether we're talking about Google's Beyond Corp. Now, so that the show that we did with Google was about Beyond Corp. And if I recall correctly, most of what we talked about in that show was about device logins and user identity, sort of this user level, login level, application, you know, top level identity and trust system. And, you, you know, you have a, a very fine grained model by which your organization lets users establish trust with the the network. If I recall correctly, uh, that's that's what it was about. Your current work is more around this workload identity. Explain what workload identity is. Yeah, workload identity is something that, that has traditionally been done kind of all over the place and vastly different ways. The, the, the basic concept of workload identity is, hey, you know, in the BeyondCorp model, uh, we have really great identity primitives for devices. We can strongly authenticate a device and, and know the quote identity of that device, usually down to the serial number or, you know, backed by some sort of inventory management store. Similar as the user, you know, and, and we've been doing user identity for ages. And so we have a lot of experience in doing that. And a lot of uh, we, we understand that problem space fairly well. What we don't have is this idea of workload identity or, or which which, you know, I kind of think of as like issuing identity to like data center software processes. So when an individual piece of software is deployed to your stack, you know, what identity does that software take on for the purposes of communicating with other pieces of software? And um, that's something that historically has we authenticate, we we're we try to authenticate workload to workload traffic, but the way in which you do it uh, can be very different and how you understand the result of that authentication across different software stacks can be very different as well. So um, the notion of, of workload identity or particularly standardized workload identity is saying, okay, like 
we understand human identity. We, we kind of need the same thing for software processes inside the data center so we can accomplish similar things as we do with user authentication and, and access control and so on and so forth. So when I have a, a new phone and I'm logging into, if I work at Google, uh, I get a new phone, I'm logging into the corporate network, and I'm earning the trust of the corporate network through some s- series of steps to get my device onto the network. And maybe there's some collection of multi-factor authentication and geo stuff going on and other things going on. But that's for the user level beyond corp model. And as you said, your your work is, is more around this workload identity. And if I understand correctly, you would classify a workload as anything that a machine is running. So whether it's a it's a microservice that's that's sitting there and accepting requests and and logging and uh, doing tasks like that, or it's a uh, it's a batch job. Could you shed more light on that term workload? What is a workload? Yeah, I mean, I think that. The way you describe it is pretty apt. It, it, it can be any of those things. You know, it can be it can be a piece of software that pops up and does some processing and goes down. It can be a long lived service. I think like what exactly what workload means beyond just kind of the the, the broad and coarse idea of of a data center process. It, it depends on the exact problems you're trying to solve. I think that most people today are using workload identity in a way that is similar to the concept of service identity. So, for instance, if you have a web stack and you have you know a load balancer and you have um, ten web servers behind that load balancer and then a database server behind that, you know I would say that the load balancer would have one identity. Every web server would have a different identity. Where you know that might be the name, just the name web server or whatever you choose to, to kind of name it. And then the database would have another identity. So just because the workload, just because the web server workload is deployed across 10 different machines doesn't necessarily mean that's 10 different identities. That is kind of a single workload. The load balancer is a single workload and the data set and the, the uh, data store is a single workload. So in a typical deployment today, like let's say I'm deployed on AWS and I've got this series of load balancers and and other scalability features, uh, different instances of of microservices that are behind a load balancer. How are these authenticating requests and and deciding which requests to accept? How how does typical security in workload-to-workload communication work? Because we're going to get into into your solution, Spiffy, which improves the workload identity and the, the workload solution system. But let's let's first discuss the state of the art. On AWS, you know, are, are how, to what degree are workloads trusting each other? I mean, I, I think that the, the most common thing to see in AWS, for uh, as an example, is like security group to security group policy. You know, the load balancer security group is able to access the web server security group on on port 80. The web server security group is able to access the database security group on port 3306. And I don't think very few people go beyond that. I mean, you, you might see a little bit in terms of database access where perhaps there's a, a password that all the web servers share and that password goes on disk on the web servers. And like you probably won't see much between the load balancer and the web servers and and even like the mechanics from the web servers. The data store can be different. Some people might not use a password at all, you know, and it kind of depends on what the services are. Some some people will go as far as to make like API tokens and say, okay, well this this is the API token that you should use to access this other service. But I would say that's less common. The, the, the most common thing is like layer three and layer four uh, network security control. Do you have anything against that security group model? Are there any weaknesses to it? I mean, there are some, and, and it all kind of depends on your threat model. You know, first is that and when we're talking specifically about AWS here, you know, the first is that as soon as as soon as that as soon as you have like more than one region involved, that model falls apart pretty quickly because a security group can only be referenced within the same region. The second thing is is you know a lot of people will choose not to completely trust the public cloud provider. There's a security model called the semi-trusted public cloud, um, which which basically says, look, we're only going to trust the things that we absolutely have to, which is basically the hypervisor and the hardware underneath. That everything else we're not going to trust. We won't necessarily trust that the network is doing the right thing. We won't necessarily trust that the disks, that the data on the disk is safe. Taking this approach gets you a little closer 
towards that zero trust model. But you can imagine that if a network security control were to fail, then it would be quite easy for traffic to bleed over if there's no actual authentication material. And additionally, without encryption on the wire, if, you know, and I used to be a network engineer. And so I, I remember pretty commonly like tapping into switches and routers to capture traffic to try and diagnose a problem. And there's just a ton of of unencrypted traffic there. And now that thing's sitting on my disk and maybe I leave it in a car which is broken into or silly things like that can happen. And so, you know, my opinion is that the best hygiene is is just to encrypt it, even if it's in a VPC or what have you. To continue to give some context on this set of, of problems and, and set of challenges within the average company that wants to do zero trust security model implementation, there are lots and lots of workloads at an, an average company, and the workloads are, are, are just increasing in cardinality. The services are smaller. There's more instances of those services. There's more API calls being made. How is this affecting the security model for workload-to-workload interactions? It's really affecting kind of this model that we were just discussing with this kind of security group, layer three, layer four uh, security controls, because if you want to be granular, like, like, look, under the covers, you know, a security group is literally just distilled down to a set of IP addresses that are members of that security group. And then we build like basic IP, essentially IP tables rules, which say like, hey, this traffic's allowed to go to this IP address, that IP address, that IP address, that's it. As you have kind of this explosion in the microservices graph, if you will, these relationships get vastly more complex. And to build up those rule sets and to maintain them over time is extremely painful. And it also doesn't scale very well. And the only way that, that you really have to scale it is to group things into certain network segments and then say, okay, this portion of the network is allowed to receive. So you're moving further and further away from really accurately describing what you're trying to do. And, and this gets even harder when you're striping that infrastructure across multiple places. If you, we talked earlier about legacy systems on on-prem, obviously can't use security groups and you might have to have like some sort of VPN tunnel set up in order to, to pipe the traffic between your AWS deployment and your on-prem deployment. And so those VPN tunnels, you know, get more heavily used and it also constricts you in terms of application topology, for instance, you probably wouldn't want something running active-active with that VPN tunnel in between it. So as the connectivity graph gets much, much tighter, um, these traditional security controls of, hey, we're just going to use a slash 32 IP-based rule, those rules like get very, very quickly unmanageable, and, and they also suffer performance-wise. We talked a little bit about AWS's security model. If I'm on Google Cloud, what is the security model there? That's a good question. I'm actually not sure. I wouldn't be surprised if it was something similar to security groups or network security groups. I know that Azure has something similar called network security groups. I think the the real kind of overarching problem with relying on cloud-based services to perform the security checks for you is that they can't really get more granular than the machine itself. They don't have a window into what is actually running on that machine. So you might be able to. So that's why like IP is a good proxy for that, but doesn't necessarily say, "Hey, this is the actual this is the, the actual piece of software you thought should be calling you, and not the log shipper or something that really shouldn't be." So you can only do so much from like kind of the perspective of the platform, right? And so if you had machine to machine authentication, then you could also theoretically have some vulnerability where a microservice that is malicious spins up on your machine and it's trusted, like the machine is trusted, so the the microservice has free reign. Yeah, absolutely. Or, I mean, it could even be things that are even more benign, like, hey, you know, my system updated itself and it pulled down it pulled down a malicious version of, of a package from our internal package repository. Or just or, a broken uh, some- version. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, and this becomes even more important when you start talking about Kubernetes or other like multi-tenant models, the DCOS, et cetera, when you actually have multiple things running on the same host, machine to machine, like this idea of machine identity being good enough starts to kind of fall apart. And, you know, my favorite argument is like, look, even on like a single tenant deployment, I write a piece of code and I deploy it to a machine and that's the only code that runs on the machine. The reality is that it's not. You have all sorts of other agents and processes going on in that box that, that all could realistically benefit from the IP-based or machine-to-machine type authentication. So going one step further, I think, is, is, is really prudent. And, you know, historically, it, it's been hard to do. And, and you know, the Spiffy project is aiming to kind of solve that pain. Yeah, we'll get into Spiffy in one sec. I wonder, with in your time as a network security engineer, 
Have you seen these kinds of vulnerabilities go from being kind of a theoretical concern to being a real-world concern? Have you seen uh, cases of actual attacks that have been delivered as a result of uh, poor workload authentication? Yeah, I have. And I mean, it really, it happens all the time. You know, if you go to any conference or you even just look at the news and see some of these breaches that are coming out, the Target breach was a great example. I mean, some of the biggest breaches in the world occur occur just like this, you know, and, and you know, any time that you see on like a, uh, anytime that you see the word like lateral movement, usually this is the kind of stuff that we're talking about. Because when you declare that the network is trusted, you tend to not really strongly police what we call east-west traffic within that trusted zone. And so as long, as soon as one little thing over in the corner that happens to be in that zone is compromised, moving through that, that quote trusted zone, uh, usually becomes pretty trivial because of lack of authentication or lack of rigorous security controls within the zone itself. And lateral movements, as a lot of people are aware, is kind of like one of the really, really big problems that we have as, as an industry today. And and so, you know, I think the zero trust model as a whole is, has identified that and said, this is really bad state of affairs. And it's becoming easier and easier to get into those trusted zones. And unless we do something about it, you know, like the industry is not looking to fix that problem, right? And so zero trust is kind of saying, well, this used to work really well. <laughs> it used to work really well when this was like a building that you had to badge into and things like that. But now you have laptops coming and going and you have people working remotely. And, and this kind of concept of a big wall, a moat and trusted zone falls apart. And, and so, you know, to kind of answer your question a little more directly, absolutely. The large majority of big cyber attacks that you see in the news are leveraging exactly these kinds of vulnerabilities in the network. The target vulnerability, if I recall, was the attacker got access to the software running on an HVAC system and then was able to find a network path from the HVAC system to the database with the user's credit cards in them. Is that right? Yes, yes. That's my understanding. Uh, my understanding is actually that uh, the attacker compromised one of the people who was working on the HVAC system and then used their VPN connection to get into the target network and was able from there to gain access to the card processing systems. So that's a perfect example of, uh, oh, we, but we had a firewall. We we had this barrier of entry around our, our total network, but then it illustrates that that just means you have a very wide attack surface. And yes, that attack surface is somewhat secure. But if somebody finds an entry point anywhere on that really wide attack surface, they've got the keys to the kingdom. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I think that, you know, the reaction, the approach that the industry has taken is, okay, well, like, let's break it down into smaller zones. And, you know, let's, let's, let's make the segments smaller and, and do more segmentation. And I, I think, you know, it, it helps, certainly, but it's not addressing like the core problem here. You know, um, as soon as a tech plugs their laptop into that part of the network and they've been compromised, it, yes, it, it is an improvement on what, you know, most people do with this huge perimeter, but it is still is not like the solution. It's more you know, trying to mitigate, like, uh, what is it called when you're sick? And it's trying it's like addressing the symptoms and not necessarily the actual underlying cause. Yeah. Okay. We have motivated a discussion of Spiffy. What is Spiffy? S-P-I-F-F-E. That's right. Spiffy is, is trying to kind of solve this, this workload to workload authentication and, and security problem. The basic idea here is, you know, as humans, we have established, you know, identity paradigms. Everybody has a full legal name. We have age, we have height, we have so on and so forth. We also have usernames and a username identifies a particular user to a computer system. You can think of Spiffy in a very similar way. Spiffy provides kind of a username to workloads that are operating inside the data center. But this username is presented in a standardized way. Um, so it's not like uh, so the homegrown authentication system over here has to kind of mold to this other authentication system over there. We're trying to say, okay, here is the de facto standard for what a username for a workload is and how you like authenticate that username. Secure Production Identity Framework for Everyone. 
just to make sure that people have a basic understanding of what Spiffy is, can you explain that acronym, Secure Production Identity Framework, for everyone? Yeah. So what I described this concept of a username, that is like the most basic part of, of what Spiffy is. We call that a Spiffy ID. And it's more about just that, right? You also have to kind of prove, you have to authenticate, you have to prove that you are uh, that thing that you say you are. And you also have to assume that identity somehow. So Spiffy is kind of this, this suite of specifications that aims to solve uh, really three major problems. Number one is just that username, that namespace problem in a way that different software stacks can interoperate with each other. Number two is how you prove that, authenticate that. So, you know, whether that's using an X509 certificate or whether that's using a JWT, there's a specification that says, here is where the Spiffy ID goes. Here are the different properties of the X509 certificate that must or must not be set. And finally, provides an API uh, that we call the workload API, which workloads hit when they first spin up to actually get issued this identity. So, you know, it's a common problem. They, they call this problem secure introduction or the secret zero problem, um, where when you deploy software uh, to production, when it first enters and, and starts up, how does it get like its first secret material? Does that get injected during deployment? Um, is it sitting on disk waiting to go? So the workload API uh, gives a standard way for for a workload to kind of retrieve this identity. And it, it can kind of be compared uh, loosely to the concept of like a, a AWS instance identity document where, you know, something starts up, I can hit this address and it can get some sort of proof of, of the instance that it is running on. Um, this is a very, very similar thing, but it's platform agnostic. Uh, so it, it's not necessarily tied intrinsically to AWS or GCP or, or whatever platform the workload is running on, which means that the workload can kind of be portable and run across multiple infrastructures without having any code changes or anything like this. A spiffy ID defines a trust domain. A trust domain can represent an individual or an organization or an environment or a department. Every workload has a spiffy ID. What is a trust domain within a spiffy ID? So the a trust domain is, is a portion of the spiffy ID. A spiffy ID is modeled as a URI. Uh, and it has the spiffy scheme uh, set. And then uh, the host portion of the URI, the, the portion that we would traditionally say is the host name, um, that is, is uh, what we call the trust domain. And one way to think about it is that a trust domain is rooted in a set of cryptographic keys. So this is kind of like a way that you carve the namespaces out. So for a, a typical deployment might have a trust domain in staging and then a separate trust domain in production. And what this ends up meaning is not only are the Spiffy IDs different as you promote from, from one to the other, but also that they're, they're minted from separate cryptographic keys. Uh, so if there's a compromise in one, the blast radius is contained. And so the way that you carve out these trust domains um, kind of depends on your own security model and, and the topologies that, that you're looking for. Separating environments is very common. Also, uh, separating business units is also very common. So, you know, IT may want full control of their own keys and their own spiffy system and then a different part of the organization say say uh, hr might want their own and they don't interoperate necessarily with each other unless they are explicitly connected together and those keys are shared hopefully that, that answers the question yeah it does so if i am a workload i'm a spiffy workload i'm some microservice and i'm talking to a load balancer or i'm talking to another microservice how do I authenticate to that other workload that is also running the Spiffy system? Yes, yeah, so this is kind of uh, what I was alluding to earlier with, you know, the, one of the specifications in the Spiffy specification set, we call the SVID specification, which is the secure verifiable identity document or the Spiffy verifiable identity document. I think some, so many acronyms is hard to remember sometimes. And what this is, is it's basically saying, okay, now that we have like some shared notion of, of identity, a Spiffy ID, that's great. But um, how do we actually use it in a secure way? So there are many different kinds of SVIDs right now. We have specifications uh, for X509 SVID, so a regular certificate, and we have a specification for a JOT. And the way that you'd go about using these things is, is very frequently done like with mutual TLS. 
Um, so one workload will establish a mutual TLS session with another workload. And as long as they're using this standardized X509 format, we can introspect that certificate. We can know exactly where to find that spiffy identity, and then we can run it through uh, whatever authorization processes we need to. So the process of, of authenticating one workload to another, do they need to do some kind of handshake? Is there a central server that's mediating identities and, and is the, you know, sort of the source, the bank of trust? Get, shed some more light on the model for establishing trust between two workloads. Sure. Generally speaking, the trust domain is the authority and it's typically centralized. So, you know, in the case of X509, the trust domain might represent a certificate authority or a CA. Systems that are existing within the same trust domain will automatically trust that each other's identities are valid because their identities are minted by the same certificate authority. So that trust happens automatically. That's not to say that a particular spiffy ID should or should not be accessing a particular resource. You know, that's what we call an authorization decision. But as far as authenticating the identity and, and saying, yes, this is a valid spiffy identity, things that are within the same trust domain kind of get that automatically. There is a separate paradigm uh, called federation, spiffy federation, uh, which works kind of like currently in the works, which is a uh, Drafting a specification that says this is how these CA certificates actually move between trust domains. So in the event that you have one workload that wants to authenticate and trust another a workload in a different trust domain, it is necessary for them to kind of swap these CA certificates and know, hey, when you know trust domain A calls me, I need to use the CA certificates from trust domain A to validate its identity. And that, like I said, is, is kind of currently in the works and it's the way that it's going is kind of following an, an OAuth flow. And you would essentially kind of like hit the other trust domain and pull the certs across and you'd do it bilaterally. But like I mentioned, within the same trust domain, this, this trust kind of comes by default because you're sharing a common authority. So if I, if I understood you correctly, you're saying there that you have one mechanism for identity, for, for defining my identity. Like uh, if I'm talking to another workload, I'm a workload, I can define my identity through one mode. And, but then there's also a system for defining what identities have access to what resources? Is it, Did you say that? Yeah, this is a fairly important point. Most people conflate the ideas of authentication and authorization. They're very different problem domains. The authentication problem domain is prove to me strongly that you are who you say you are, right? And prove to me that, that this thing has not been modified, that it is authentic when I received it. There's a second problem domain, which is authorization, which is the problem you described. That is, okay, now that I know who you are, who you say you are, are you actually supposed to be asking me this thing? Are you allowed to be doing this? And so the latter is what we call authorization. The former is what we call authentication. And it's uh, very important to kind of distinguish the two because the you know the spiffy project is aiming to solve authentication only it does not venture into this realm of authorization should you be or should you not be um, there are some other projects in the ecosystem which are aiming to solve those things and and spiffy interoperates and plugs into those but we are the spiffy project solves purely this identity and authentication issue and pushes the authorization problem into a higher part of the stack Okay, so Spire is a reference implementation of Spiffy. Explain what the goal of, of Spire is. So I mentioned that, you know, trust domain is, is, is an authority. It's usually centralized. In the case of X509, there's a certificate authority involved. I also mentioned that there's a thing called the workload API, which is, which is how workloads retrieve their identities. So, you know, those are the specifications. Something actually has to take on those duties. Something has to be a certificate authority somewhere. Something has to turn on this workload API and serve it. That's what Spire actually, does. Actually, can we take a quick, quick detour? Can you remind us what certificate authority is? Certificate authority is it's kind of like the DMV or a passport agency. You know, so a passport agency is the one that issues these passports, these identity documents to, to citizens. A certificate authority is very similar. It, it is a, the authority which is essentially minting or issuing these identities to individuals within its uh, jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And that's the case whether we're talking about a certificate authority that's minting certificates for like a corporate network or if we're talking about like certificates for the broader internet, like domain names and stuff, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And we call those public versus private certificate authorities, where the public ones are widely trusted and and issue certificates for internet TLS, you know, bankofamerica.com or whatever. And the private authorities are, are run inside an organization and are not publicly exposed or publicly trusted, but trusted within that one domain. So does a a private certificate authority operator, they're just like operating their own certificate authority or are there companies and, and like, is this an AWS kind of thing that you, you get your certificate authority, you get a, a specific certificate authority system from AWS? Historically, it has been kind of operate your own. Uh, recently, we started to see uh, some more solutions come online for what we call managed private certificate authorities or PKI. AWS has announced one in the last uh, several months, I believe, called AWS CA Manager. But historically, it's been something that, that people operate on their own. And it's also historically very, very difficult to operate, um, which is why <laughs> I most c- people I can don't. imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another term you mentioned before we get back to Spire, I think X509 certificate. So there's some specific type of certificate that we're talking about here for workload identification. Yeah, X509 is is a standard which exists that, that says here is the format of our certificate. Here are the different fields that are allowed. Here is how you extend it. Here is where the public key goes and the signature and so on and so forth. I mean, some folks have kind of invented their own certificate formats. I think SSH has a, its own certificate format that is separate from X509. But X509 is by far and, uh, by far and away uh, the most popular format for a digital certificate. And, and it is the one that secures, you know, HTTPS traffic, essentially. Anything TLS that you do on the internet is all backed by X509 certificate. And again, that's only a mode of authentication. It's not a mode of uh, what what uh, resources you're authorized to access. That's correct. That's why when you go to bankofamerica.com, you still have to actually log in. Right. Makes sense. Okay, coming back to Spire. So you said Spire is a reference implementation of Spiffy. So I think uh, Spire defines this way of, of uh, or it implements this way of deploying a, I guess, having a certificate authority and the relationships between the workloads, how the workloads authenticate with each other, how they establish their identity with that network certificate authority that you've deployed. Maybe can you shed some more light on on, on what Spire actually implements? Yeah, Spire implements the certificate authority uh, that we were just discussing. So there's two components, uh, Spire Server and Spire Agent. The Spire Server actually implements this the certificate authority and signs the X509 certificates uh, for workloads which run within its trust domain. There's a one-to-one relationship between a Spire Server, a Spire Server cluster, and a trust domain. And so the Spire Server does this. It also, the agents... Uh, kind of cooperate to turn on this workload API. And the workload API is accessible kind of only locally, goes over a Unix domain socket. And so they kind of act as the medium to expose this API to workloads and then to ask the server for credentials, the the X509 certificates themselves, to be minted and which they pass off to the workloads when they should be. Mm -hmm. So I think there are two things, the two primary things. You have this central registry of spiffy IDs, which I guess is the is there that's the same thing as the certificate authority, or is there also like a database aside from the certificate authority that actually holds the spiffy IDs? Uh, yes, there there is the Spire server does have a data store. It is a pluggable data store, so you can write your own plugin. Or right now, it supports like. Postgres and SQLite for like you know staging or test deployments, and that does act as a central registry for Spiffy IDs. So if you think about if you think about how to issue an identity, if a workload pops up and it doesn't know who it is, you have to figure out who it is. And so we can do this by measuring the workload in, in, in various ways. And so this central registry of Spiffy IDs is essentially is essentially that kind of mapping. You know, when you go to the password agency and you bring your your information with you, you might bring an ID and you might bring some mail and you might bring a couple other things that serve to positively identify you as the person that you say you are. This mapping is similar. So the, the mapping that exists within, within a uh, Spire server might say, okay, when something hits the workload API and it is running in Kubernetes namespace foo and it has Kubernetes service account bar and the SHA of the binary which is calling me is this particular SHA, then issue it spiffy ID bat. Mm-hmm. Is there uh, any scalability issues with that central 
Spire server? Because if you've got all the workloads in your, you know, let's say we're, we're some high growth startup, like we're Coinbase or something, and, and we, we need all of our microservices to be able to authenticate with each other. Is this like a single point of failure? It can be, and you know, you deal with it in, in several ways. The, the first thing I'll say is that you know, when we issue these X509 certificates, these identities, they are good for some time. Um, so even if the server goes away for a little while, everything doesn't just fall over immediately. The only time that the server is actually used is when you need to kind of refresh or renew these certificates because they don't last forever. So you do have a knob where you can say, you know what, this particular workload is a very sensitive one. I want its certificate to be good for one week. And so if the server goes away, you essentially have one week's worth of of time to kind of recover it. So, So that's one thing. The second thing is that Spire supports uh, high availability, um, so you can have multiple Spire servers deployed. Uh, you could even have them deployed in an autoscale group or something like that to make sure that the downtime is manageable. And the final piece of the puzzle here is that federation piece that I was talking about earlier, where if you say, hey, I'd really prefer that these failure domains be separated, then you can carve out different trust domains and which are completely disjoint from each other and introduce a federation relationship such that and the, the CA certificates are usually much longer lived than the other identities themselves. And so this tends to work pretty well additionally. And I guess there's there's one other thing that is kind of in the works where we're working on making some updates to the Spire code base to allow it to kind of like to allow them to chain together in a hierarchy. So you might have like one common Spire server cluster that has, you know, keys that live for six months or something like this. And maybe that cluster normally lives offline or something. And then you have clusters beneath it, which have shorter lived keys, which have keys that are issued from the central authority but are on kind of a, a shorter life lifespan. And so you can manage the different failure domains and how long you have after one goes down using kind of like a mishmash of all these different approaches, depending on what makes the most sense for you. Now, every time I, I roll out a service, if I do an update, do I want to put this in my continuous delivery process where I get a new certificate or I get a certificate refresh every time I update my software? The workload API that I described, which is, is just kind of like the primary integration point for softwares that consume Spiffy, uh, works on a push model. So the agent will actually track the expiration dates of, of the certificates that's handed out. And once it's passed about half of its lifetime, it will create a new one automatically and it will push it directly into your software. So you don't have to redeploy software to rekey. The software can be deployed for and running for as long as you like, and, and it is dynamically rekeyed uh, through this mechanism. We have kind of uh, pondered about you know so-called agentless deployments where we inject the material through the deployment pipeline instead, and, and there's definitely some advantages to that approach, and there's also some disadvantages. Number one is that you're giving essentially giving the CI service access to all identities, which you know, is is arguable like if it's if it really matters or not. But also there like CI and C D processes tend to vary wildly from like one company to another company. And so coming up with a generalized solution is, is, is a little bit difficult. And we're, we're exploring some, you know, oh, like a Jenkins plugin or something like this. We're exploring some some of those options, but we've kind of like purposely avoided tying deployment to key lifecycle for now and Perhaps there are some more options there in the future. So just to be clear, if, if I have a, a new update to my software, if I make some minor update to my software, I do not need to refresh the certificate that I have with that certificate authority. Not necessarily. So this is really interesting. I think we've covered the basics of, of Spiffy and Spire. But at a more macro level, Spire is a reference implementation. So this is not... Like, people don't have this in production yet. Is that correct? It's moving in that direction. You know, we've, we've put a lot of, of work on Spire, and, it, and it, is, it does serve as the Spiffy reference implementation. However, it is more robust than most reference implementations, and we know people are running it in staging, and it is, it is slowly but surely moving towards production. I mean, I, I, hope, to see it in, I hope to see it in production. We've, we've, we've done a lot of work, like HA support and things like this. We're specifically with an eye towards making it productionized. And so, so, and then that point you just say this is an implementation it's not a reference implementation <laughs> right yeah there's been a little bit back and forth on like how we actually position this marketing wise and also like what does 1.0 mean what does production ready mean like what are the qualifications and it's a really kind of fuzzy 
and hard thing to define because for different people, production ready means different things. So, you know, I would say that in some production environments, maybe it's suitable today. Maybe if you have a more rigorous environment, maybe it's not, but uh, we're quickly, we're quickly getting to that. Now, so you're part of a company, I think you probably helped start this company, Sightail.io, right? So this sounds like a really good business, by the way, because if you're helping with a clear implementation of of zero-trust networking across workloads, man, that sounds like a really good business. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> you know, I think like, you know, Sightail is the primary development force behind Spire right now. It's, of course, open source project, as Spiffy as well. So it's, of course, an open source project, and we have plenty of external contributors. But in terms of full-time employees working on the code base, Sightail is the primary employer. And, you know, we're still kind of iterating on on our commercial product. We're not quite ready to talk about it just yet, but um, it does build upon Spire as a foundational cornerstone and kind of, you know, Spire gives this really, really great building block for building a zero trust network, but it stops, it stops at identity issues and authentication. And there's so much more that comes above that if you want to reach kind of this zero trust reality. And so the commercial products that we're working on aim to kind of fill those gaps in for folks that don't want to write their own or don't have their own already. Let me speculate a little bit. So first of all, you could use Helm. Helm would make the deployment of this kind of thing much easier. So you have Helm, the, the package manager for Kubernetes. So if somebody's running Kubernetes and they want to deploy their own zero-trust networking model, they could probably do some kind of Helm installation and get it up and running pretty pretty easily. But there's all these edge cases. If you really want to have zero trust networking across, you know, your Kubernetes cluster in terms of all the different workloads, so you probably got some edge cases there. And then, most likely, if you're a legacy enterprise, you don't just have Kubernetes. It's not like your entire infrastructure is Kubernetesized. You've got cloud resources that are, you know, some some older cluster management software. You've got, you know, maybe Cloud Foundry somewhere. You've got a lot of random stuff, and so you, then you've got like quite a good model for, you know, either an enterprise version or just like support. Like there's all kinds of integration issues, but then you have a, you you still have that really good open core model because people can just sort of do a Helm install on their basic Kubernetes cluster and you will have some people who are just going to use that and then they're going to update the, you know, open source repository. Sounds like a great model for an open source business. Yeah, I'm hoping so and I mean it's the reason why I came here, you know, and, and I'm doing this work because I'm a, a huge believer in open source software. And, you know, I, I, you know, the primary driver for me doing this work is, hey, I wrote this book. And then like, okay, now people read it, and they want to go do it. And there's nowhere to start. <laughs> and there's all these big problems that have to be solved. And oh, by the way, I need this huge engineering team, and I need all this stuff. And, and so solving this problem, which I believe to be a very foundational problem to reaching the zero trust architecture, uh, solving it in the open for everyone is really philosophically important for me. You know, certainly there are a lot of companies who operate at scale where, okay, I have this great Spire software, but how do I wire it all together? How do I wire it across these boundaries? How do I raise that value too? Like, uh, great, I can get certificates now, but how do I actually use them and apply them and, and where and, and so on and so forth? There's that, that flexibility is something that I think a lot of folks, especially in the Bay Area, will look to implement their own because they like and enjoy that flexibility. And for a lot of people, they just don't have the resources, they don't have the time, they may not have the talent to, to do that or manage it effectively. And so I think those are the great areas where Sitel can help out. And so, by the way, this is a CNCF project, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which is which houses a lot of the projects related to Kubernetes. But this is not something that's that's distinct to Kubernetes, right? You could have, in fact, what's interesting is you could extend this to the same stuff, kind of the Google Beyond Corp stuff. You could extend this to like cell phone workloads, right? Like mobile workloads. You could extend this to kind of anything in zero trust networking. Yeah, it's been an interesting thought experiment to kind of think through what what, what that might look like. You know, the Spiffy project, Inspire as well, right now, um, is has kind of drawn in the reins and has said, look, like. We're going to focus explicitly on data center use cases, but I think you're right and you can see like, you know, assuming like adoption goes and everything goes according to plan, you can see definitely in the far future, hey, like, am I using the latest patched version of Chrome on my phone? And if so, then issue with this client certificate and, and uh, yeah, I think that there's definitely a potential future there, but for now we're, we're trying to kind of keep it focused. That sounds like a reasonable idea. But it does work for like Cloud Foundry workloads and AWS workloads. Like you can have your Kubernetes 
cluster on your own servers and then it's you know doing zero trust networking with AWS instances, right? You could set that up? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's kind of the big power behind Spiffy and Spire is bridging those big gaps of you know what we call different identity domains and different authentication domains. Yeah. Pretty cool your route to sort of like writing a book about a concept that people wanted to know more about, zero trust networks. Like there was a little bit of information in the air. Google had published some papers about this that were that were great. And they, you know, Google has some services around it, I think. Like they sell some services. There's some consultants offering services, but the the information was kind of scant. There weren't any open source projects around, or, or maybe there were, maybe there just weren't as many as I know about. But then you sort of, you wrote this book and then you kind of parlayed it into starting an open source project, starting a company. It sounds like a really good outcome for, you know, did they just this just began as like, I'm really interested in this. I'm going to write a book about it. And then you just sort of parlayed it naturally or did you, was this a master plan? No, it definitely is not a master plan uh, at all. It, it was, you know, I kind of alluded to it earlier. It was kind of like, okay, the book is coming to an end. And, you know, I was talking to my co-author and he's like, man, I feel awful. I feel like we've just dropped this huge amount of work in everyone's laps and be like, go back to the drawing board, people. You know, like <laughs> you've got to like change everything. And, and oh, by the way, like you can't just buy it and anything to put it in. It, you know, very few people have those kinds of resources. And, and so, you know, in writing the book, like the purpose of writing the book was very much, hey, we think that we see something here. We think that it's important. We'd like to share it with you because, you know, if we can kind of get everyone on the same page and, and push the, just give this ball a little nudge off the top of the mountain, so to speak, maybe we can actually have some impact in terms of, of security posture of networks that are, people are building. And, you know, by the time that we got towards the end of writing the book, it became very apparent that just writing the book and dropping it into someone's lap is not enough. You know, like it, you can get people excited and you can get them thinking in the right way and direction, but it is far from enabling, you know, it's more of an implementer's guide than, than a deployment guide, you know? And so that kind of really hit home for me. And, you know, it's a, it kind of became like, well, like, what I set out to do is not complete because it's it's become clear that the book doesn't cut it, you know, in, in terms of like actually affecting change. And so then I kind of turned my attention to say, okay, well, how can I, how can I actually improve the situation and give people the tools and resources they need to actually go and do it without a huge amount of money or, or very talented engineers. And, and so, you know, from that perspective, it was pretty obvious that, well, there has to be an open source project that accomplishes something in this arena. And um, starting with this kind of concept of identity and authentication at the very most fundamental layer of the stack seemed like the most appropriate place to start. Okay. Well, Evan, it's been really great talking. Are you going to KubeCon China? I will not be at KubeCon China, but I will be at KubeCon North America uh, in December. Okay. Well, I will see you there. I'm planning to go to, to both of those, do the KubeCon World Tour. Fantastic. I look forward to meeting you in person. Sounds good, Evan. Well, great to have you on the show and really good talking. Best of luck with Spire and Spiffy. Likewise. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wow. 